So the book of Titus is actually a letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul. And since I'm married to an English teacher, I'm always searching for brownie points. I want to use a method that we all learned in school to help us unpack this, this book. And that's the who, the what, the when, and the where. When I told that to Rebecca, she got a little excited. So, uh, score. But we're starting with the who. So who's in this, who is in this book? Well, it is a letter from Paul to Titus. Uh, and, and if you have any church background, any church history knowledge, you know who Paul is. Paul is arguably the second most influential man in human history. He uh, was a missionary. He was once a Jewish religious leader who was persecuting Christians, who then went on to have an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus and was converted, changed from a uh, persecutor of Christians into a guy who was making the name of Christ known to the world. And, and then he did all these missionary journeys. He wrote letters to churches, admonishing them for the things that they have fallen away from or, or encouraging them to, to keep, hold, keep fast and hold the faith. Uh, and he, he discipled many, many church leaders. Uh, and many of the letters that Paul had written to the churches were canonized and became what we call the Pauline epistles found in the New Testament. And Titus is one of these letters. Uh, and, and Titus isn't as well known as, as Paul. He's not as famous as Paul. Um, while Paul's like conversion and, and his ministry and even his death are recorded in Acts and through his letters that he wrote, uh, Titus only has a few mentions in a couple of different books from, or letters from Paul. Uh, but what we can gather from, from what Paul said about Titus, Paul held Titus in great esteem. And this letter's proof of it. We can gather from Galatians and 2 Timothy and 1 and 2 Corinthians that Titus was an educated Gentile convert and disciple of Paul who served as Paul's secretary and as an interpreter. So he's a, he's a smart guy. And he accompanied him on different councils and different visits and different missionary journeys. Uh, and, and Titus was sent, we see through in 2 Corinthians, Titus was sent by Paul to help troubled churches, to fix and correct issues, to restore order and purpose and so you could claim that Titus was a troubleshooter, that he was a peacemaker, an administrator, and a missionary. Um, and, and so now that's the who. Now for the what, the when, and the where. It is believed that the book of Titus, the letter to Titus, was written between mid, the mid to late 60s AD. Uh, and it was written to Titus who was on the island of Crete. Uh, and so the what, or the purpose of this letter, was Paul encouraging Titus to continue the work. We see in Titus 1, verses 4 and 5 this. Paul writing, I am writing to Titus, my true son, in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. So you might be asking, Jordan, why do we need to know where this is written? If that's what you're, if that's what you're asking, that's awesome. I've got the answer in my notes here. It is important simply because the island of Crete doesn't have the best reputation. It's not the most moral place in the Roman world. Paul, in verse 12, uh, chapter 1, he said this, that uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Okay, you would think that in verse 13, Paul would then be like, well... Not everybody's like that, all right? That's just a few bad apples. That's that one little guy who just happens to be loud. He's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. But, I mean, he's, it's really not that big of a deal. But Paul doesn't do that. 
This is what Paul says in verse 13. This testimony is true. Like, ouch. Like, man, Paul, like, encouraging people. So before we're like, man, Paul's a jerk. Uh, there's actually historians. Can you say that from the pulpit? Uh, too late. Uh, but, but, but there's many historians who actually said this. One is, uh, and I'm from West Texas, so I'm going to butcher these names. Uh, one is Polybus, and he says, almost always it's always almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. And Cicero, uh, he said this, moral principles are so divergent that Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Like, that is a horrible reputation. I learned last night that there's even a modern phrase for this, and it's don't be a Cretan. Like if you're being kind of crummy and you're about to lie, it's like, hey, don't be a Cretan. Like that's insane that these people had that big of a reputation that one, here in America in 2019, that that is still a phrase that Paul, an apostle of Christ, who is all about grace, who we'll find out here in a minute, it mentions this, and that historians like, have, have labeled these guys as horrible people. And, and so I was thinking, like, man, what's one thing or group of people that we can relate to here at Bel Air? Who would be the Cretans? Like, who would be our version of the Cretans? And, and this was the only thing I could think of. Like, this is... <laughs> And, and before you're all like, yeah, Dallas Cowboys are terrible. Okay, I'm a Cowboys fan. And I, 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 did y'all hear that? Did y'all go, oh, 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 I was going to listen. Uh, now I'm going to put my AirPods in. Like, now I, like, that's true. This breaks my heart. But I'm, every time I say, like, oh, the Cowboys are, they're like, ooh, you're from Dallas? You're a Cowboys fan? Ooh, like, it's just, that's a joke. Got you to laugh. But all joking aside, it was important to Paul that we have someone he trusted help further the gospel and keep the churches aligned. So Paul left Titus and encouraged him to finish the work that he started. And as I read and studied for the sermon, Titus is rich. There's a lot there. Uh, but there was one passage that stuck out to me, and I believe it's the glue that held this letter together. Uh, in my mind, this is the central message and purpose of the letter. It's found in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward to the hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave us his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. See, the reason this sticks out to me is probably the same reason that I'm so drawn to John Wesley's teachings. These, these verses, this passage, speaks of a deep and scandalous thing. Something that we would deem as reckless and unintelligent. And we would call its implementation unfounded and ill-informed. And that thing is grace. So if you only had this verse, verse 11, you could imply that the saving grace of God was given to people who were currently living godless lifestyles and indulging in sinful pleasures. Wouldn't that be considered reckless 
and a waste. Imagine if your sons and daughters were like in love with a bum who didn't do anything, who didn't reciprocate any affection to them, who didn't, didn't try to make them feel special, didn't even acknowledge their presence, and at times actively rebelled against them. You would call that reckless. You would call that a waste of your time. But that's not, that's not to God. Not to God. That's not a waste. The scandalous grace of God is the foundation of the gospel. Grace is the saving work of God. Ephesians 2.8 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you, you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation isn't because of us. It's all because of him. This shows us the depths of God's mercy and grace. This shows us that there is no sin or sinner too great that the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of Christ cannot overcome it. There is nothing too great for God. The fact that Paul wrote this to Titus, who was living in a notoriously corrupt and, and immoral society, it should give us courage that God is not scared away because of your past and present sins. That God's opinion of you is not changed because of your lack, lack of belief or understanding. That God's desire to be with you isn't swept away from your lack of desire to be with him. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the grace of God also gives us something that helps us overcome and live the life we were created to live. And that gift is his presence. A.W. Tozer says this, God's gifts are many. His best gift is one, the gift of himself. God's presence helps us fight, helps us overcome our sins and our troubles in our lives. It was God's presence on the road to Damascus that, that saved Paul, that turned Paul away. It's God's presence that causes demons to flee in fear. It's God's presence that brings healing. And we can see here that Paul is instructing Titus that there is a proper response to God's saving grace. That there is a proper response to the grace that has been shown. The proper response to grace is a life that grabs a hold of God and turns from godless living, that sees that God is bigger and better than what this world can offer, that God is eternal and will be there when all else is gone, that God is better, that Jesus is enough. The text says that we are called to live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. And that's hard, like how do we do this? How do we live in a world but have godly values that seem countercultural at times? And it's simply to remind yourself that you're not alone, that God's right there with you, that he's in the fight with you. And it's reminding yourself that the trouble that you face uh, externally or the turmoil that you face internally is nothing in comparison to the one who's on your side. And this is something that, that God's been hitting on my heart. I'm not exactly, I've had three people this week uh, come to me and say, hey Jordan, you're not exactly one who, who shows your feelings or your prayer requests or things that you, you, you that your struggles and troubles you're going through. And, and, the, and God has shown me through this text and just through this past month and a half, uh, the, the promise of his presence. This past month and a half for my family has been, been rough. And it's, I haven't really told anybody about it just because it's, it's, I'm not one to do that. And, and I need to get better at it. But, but 
I've, I've felt God through these past six weeks just telling me, holding me, saying, Jordan, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I may not intercede. I may not take this problem away, but I'm not going to leave you abandoned. I'm not going to let you be alone. I'm not going to let you, you and your family, walk through this time alone. I'm going to remind you that you're loved. I'm going to remind you that I, have, that I am life and that I've come to give it to you and your family. That no matter where you are, be it the high, valley, or high mountains of life or the valleys below, that I am with you. Like it says in Psalm 23, that he's not abandoning me. That he's with there, he's always, he's, he's with me, he's, he's been there and will always be there. And his presence one thing that just revealed to me over this past month is God's presence and his desire to be with us shows us our inherent worth. For me, God's presence helps me fight against the thoughts that my past sins have disqualified me from God's care and God's love. It also helps me overcome the notions that, that the sins of others have somehow disqualified, disqualified me from God's grace. And that... that, that that it, it doesn't matter what they've done to me, that I, I'm loved by God. They were supposed to protect and love, and they didn't, and it hurt me, and somehow it's caused me to feel less than human. But God's there reminding me, like, no, 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 you're mine. God's presence in my life shows me that I do not have to earn his affection and his approval, that his desire to be with me and his love for me is completely separate from my actions. God simply loves me because I am his. I am his child and I am the heir to the kingdom. That God's presence in my life is proof that God has, God will, and God will continue to delight in me. That God could be proud of me. And likewise, the same is for you. God simply loves you because you're his child. We don't have to earn it. It's there. It's the, the analogy of the baby walking uh, and the parents with him is it's just so true that when the baby starts walking with that big like watermelon head and they don't know how to keep it up, when they take a step, the parents are excited. When they fall down, they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to sweep them up and put them back and say, let's do it again. And that's how God is with us. He doesn't delight in our failures. He's not, oh man, there he is. There's Jordan on the ground again. Taking after his mother. Like, he's not saying things like that. He's, he is looking at me saying, oh my gosh, this is my son whom I delight. He's looking at you and he's saying, this is my child whom I love. You are his child and you are his heir. God's presence in your life is proof that God has and God will and God will continue to delight in you. And I will boldly say this. God can be has been, is currently, and will forever be proud of you. He can delight in you. He will delight in you. And we have the indwelling spirit of God who wants to help and shape and mold our hearts so that we live and that we love like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God's reminder and God's assurance of our adoption as sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit is there to comfort and encourage us when we need it. But it's also there to admonish and point out areas of improvement when we need it. The crescendo, the, the meat of Paul's message uh, to Titus, because uh, there's a lot in there. You can read it. There's about holy living. There's about, about sound doctrine, sound belief. But I believe that the crescendo, the meat of Paul's message to Titus, 
uh, was that holy living comes from a life that has experienced and has surrendered to God's grace. A grace that has been revealed that brings salvation to all people. A grace that shows us how to live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. And it's God's grace that gives us the ability to look forward to the day when we see God in all of his glory revealed. It's God's grace, that it's because of God's grace that Jesus came and freed us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and to make us his very own people. And it's by God's grace that we have been transformed from the inside out. And we are being made into people who are totally committed to doing good deeds. And so my challenge to you today is this. I want you to ask yourself, in what ways are you seeking the presence of God? In what ways are you being influenced and transformed by his grace? Because every time that we open up our Bibles, we, can, we experience God. Oh, we have to read them. Every time we open the Bible and read, let's just throw that out there. We experience God. Every time we, we, we take communion, we experience the presence of God. Every time we join together and sing the praises to God and, and make much of the name of Jesus Christ, we experience God. Every time that we pray a prayer for ourselves or for others, we experience God, we encounter God. And every time that we help others for their benefits, we are encountering God. And every time we encounter God, we are encountering his grace. We transform the world around us by being transformed first. I cannot give you something I do not possess. So my prayer for us today is that we become a people who seek daily God's presence, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us, allowing grace to take a hold and transform us so that we can preach to ourselves and preach to those around us of the hope that we have in God's unfailing and unending love for us and that the hope for the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to all people, no matter where they came from, no matter what they've done, no matter what has happened to them, that the grace of God has been revealed to all people. I say all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.